Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Love luminous writing and love lit mags? I know you do. That's why you're here, right? So I know you will love the Lit Mag Love Anthology. It's beautiful and filled with over 150 pages of poems and stories, and each poem or story in the anthology first found a home in a literary magazine. The Lit Mag Love Anthology republishes their works alongside the tale of how each author successfully submitted and published their work in Lit Mags. I'm so thrilled to show the results of the dedicated writing and submitting practices of these writers from the Lit Mag Love course community. This is work of both their creative hearts and luminous minds. So if you'd love to get a free copy of the Lit Mag Love anthology, you can get yours at litmaglove.com anthology. Now on with more Lit Mag Love. What do editors want? It's a question that many creative writers have asked themselves or more likely muttered dejectedly after a frustrating rejection. I'm Rachel Thompson, author and literary magazine editor and your podcast host. The Lit Mag Love podcast grew out of my course by the same name, and I continue to seek out answers to this question of what editors want by going right to the source. I bring you interviews and insights about how to improve and publish your writing. For this episode of Lit Mag Love, I speak with the creators of The Unpublishables, M. Paramita Lin, also known as Malloy, and Doretta Lau. And The Unpublishables is a joyfully rebellious publication who doesn't really condense themselves down to a soundbite or a description. And in fact, if you go to their about page, you'd find some text speaking directly to their readers and the writers, their contributors. It says, we know you feel lonely sometimes. We feel it too. So many sites out there, but there's still something missing, right? Where are the stories and music and artwork by fellow Asians who like the same stuff you do? And we know you all, you like all kinds of stuff. Where is the funny or angry but always smart commentary from people who know what it's like to be you, who are woke, but not so woke that we can't laugh at ourselves too? And they go on to describe the unpublishables as a platform for all kinds of rice eaters everywhere to get together and make shit happen through our words, music, and artwork. Now, writing may be the only pursuit that M. Paramita Lin hasn't accidentally stumbled into. In between hanging out with triad members and living in a succession of haunted flats in Hong Kong, she's also been a paid companion to the third wife of a tycoon, toured the world with musicians, and apprenticed as a goldsmith in Italy. We talk about all of this in our upcoming interview. Lynn's stories are mostly set in Asian cities, and they're often funny, occasionally strange, sometimes scary, but always true. 
and her co-founder of The Unpublishables is Doretta Lau. She's the author of the short story collection, How Does a Single Blade of Grass Thank the Sun? And that, that collection was shortlisted by the City of Vancouver Book Award, longlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and was named by The Atlantic as one of the best books of 2014. In 2013, she was a finalist for the Journey Prize, and she also completed an MFA in writing at Columbia University. Her fiction and poetry have appeared all over the place. I'll link to some pieces in the show notes. And one of her stories was the favorite of a famous comedian. We're going to talk more about that in this episode. Welcome to the Lit Mag Love podcast. I'm Paramita Lin and Doretta Lau. Hello. Hey there. So wonderful to have you join us today. And what I love in particular about the unpublishables is this joyful rebellion that really shines through there. And there's this energy. And I think that's true, both your independent work and your work with the unpublishables. So what's been the most fun that you've had since teaming up on this venture together? I'm not going to guess Doretta's answer but she might know mine. And that's our own sort of adventures in uh, meeting people and also experimenting with different kinds of uh, cultural rituals. Oh, for sure. That's been a lot of fun. And I think for me, the thing that's been a lot of fun is doing the interviews and the informal chats that you and I have been doing around cultural moments that we enjoy. Yeah. And also I think, um, since we've started doing the unpublishables, Dred and I have had the chance to sort of share things that we normally might not even speak about, um, simply because there's a context for it now. Yeah, we're in control of the way we want to tell the story. And so the story's anchored in the things that we know, the things that we know to be true, and the things that we think our audiences might be looking for and aren't seeing in media outlets that have, you know, three levels of editors and a publisher and an entire kind of ad sales department. Um, for us, we're really just trying to take a moment to really talk about the things that we're interested in the culture and to make the kinds of things that we want to read. Yeah, and I think we also tend to feature a lot of funnier stuff and stuff that we don't see actually being promoted in what we would call regular magazines that don't have the same um, direction that we do. Yeah, and there's a lot of kind of excited fangirling, if I can say that, for some stuff too, which I think is really cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. Um, Dred and I actually met through fangirling over uh, Japanese-Taiwanese actor Takeshi Kaneshiro. Yeah, Malo used to have this blog and one of my friends one day sent me an email that said, you have to check out this blog. And so she sent it to me, I read it, and I thought the post was funny and I ended up reading the entire blog like it was a novel. And not just that, but like we we tend to, I'd say 99% of the time agree on who's cute, I think, and what's funny. And, you know, and the 1% is usually sort of um, more in terms of degree as opposed to a a yes or no situation. Yeah, we might have disagreements over personality, but... Yes, that's right. Dorada and I uh, are attracted to certain, should we call it alignment? That may not be necessarily good for us. But (laughs) what's funny is that we can spot this in the other but perhaps not for ourselves. It's kind of like a character development uh, for for fiction. (laughs) 
Yes. But um, but yes, yeah, speaking of fangirling, we do we one of the things that I think is missing from a lot of cultural criticism is enthusiasm. And uh, a lot of the times that when we look at Western media, for example, we see a lot of people uh, sort of auteurs like directors that are, you know, they win uh, awards on the international stage. Like I, I do like directors like that, too. Like Johnny Toe comes to mind, director Bong. But while they're treated with awe. I feel like it's missing that sort of we're back home, back in Asia. We may not necessarily elevate these people to sort of this um, sainthood or sort of a very high auteur status. Whereas in Asia, we tend to poke fun uh, at status in a certain way. Um, and I think that's something that we really try to bring into the unpublishables, where no matter how elevated somebody is, we're able to sort of love them or enjoy them with humor. Nice. And, and that kind of segues into my ne next question, because you wrote that when you launched the unpublishables, that there are lots of things missing. Like, where is that funny or angry or always smart commentary from people who know what it's like to be you? You're speaking to your audience who are woke, but not so woke that we can't laugh at ourselves too. And it's been a couple of years now, years full of conversations about inclusion and, and more Asian visibility in mass culture. So how has this commentary opened up in ways that are big and small and, and maybe in what ways have they stayed the same? I think it's interesting to look at who's leading the conversation um, in that realm. And for a long time, it did feel like um, Asians and Asian Americans weren't leading the conversation. And I mean, just when we were starting the Impublishables, one of the writers who was coming to the forefront that I was really liking is E. Alex Jung, who writes for Vulture. And I'm, I think that he and a lot of um, young journalists are doing a lot of really interesting work, just talking about pop culture in this way where it means something for our lives. And there isn't this distinction between highbrow and lowbrow. And we're kind of really doing that too, so that we can publish interviews with writers such as Sue Vankam Thamavangsa, who many people know as a poet, who is um, writing fiction now. And that's kind of more in the traditional kind of literary magazine, serious approach to this idea of literature. But at the same time, Malloy and I will have um, chats where we just post our thoughts about the trailer for the film Always Be My Maybe. So we can talk about rom-coms, we can talk about poetry, we can talk about kind of spiritual beliefs, and we can have those moments where we're finding um, comic artists and we're trying to promote their work too. So it's really this kind of approach to looking at culture um, that's more expansive than the kinds of things that we were seeing before where if someone who was of Asian descent was coming to the forefront, it would be a lot more serious work, um, a lot more maybe focus on trauma. And I'm feeling like we're seeing a lot of work that's lighter now, um, but that doesn't discount things that different communities have gone through. It's just that we're allowed to be human in this way that maybe we weren't seeing before. And I also think that a lot of the more interesting or maybe authentic conversations are taking place on social media as opposed to in, uh, let's say, mainstream media, um, like Twitter, obviously. And um, personally for me, I like spying on the Chinese sort of chat platforms 
because it's uh, there the, the sheer volume of people who are commenting, sharing jokes, uh, things going viral. It's it's just it's just amazing because this is sort of the thing where uh, Chimamanda has mentioned this before: the danger of a single story. But when you go and peek into these groups, you see the diversity of backgrounds of opinions of, of of language for example Dorette and i are both even though we are both chinese we're our backgrounds are so completely different we're not even from the same linguistic group people tend to uh, flatten identities and i think what we try to do is um, to bring out these small things that we can share in i'd like to actually bring up uh, um, hassan minaj he, one of the things that made his show so popular is that if you're Indian, there's something there that's specifically for you. Not even that, but specifically a certain type of Indian experience that, that is meaningful to a group like that. And as, as a larger group of Asians, we do find it funny as well. And we understand that there's an in-joke that we're not necessarily getting, but it's okay. We are sharing in this as well. Yeah, there's like more complexity. I, I love it. You said, Doretta, about being allowed to be human in this way, being able to tell these difficult stories and then that paves way for more humor to you. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm always joking that writers like Wayson Choi and Sky Lee, they wrote these family stories, these epics, these really historical based, historically based works so that I can kind of make, you know, fart jokes um, in writing. It, it's just like they did that hard work to open up um, and expand the idea of how we can tell a story about um, an Asian Canadian experience. Now, Malloy, I want to talk about your storied careers. And yes. you said <laughs> in, in between hanging out with triad members and living in a succession of haunted flats in Hong Kong, that you've also been a paid companion to a third wife of a tycoon, toured the world with musicians, and apprenticed as a goldsmith in Italy. So I'm wondering, can you tell us what's your favorite gig been so far, and then turning it to writing too? So what brought you to writing? Um, I would say that everybody expects that being a companion to uh, the third to socialize, I want to be socialized. Actually, would have been my most favorite gig, but it actually was very difficult because I used to get very carsick in her car. It was very, very big. It was a very big Jaguar. Uh, she had a driver and he drove very well, but there was just something about the smell of the car and the size of it that used to make me feel so sick and I couldn't go with her on, on journeys. And she was very disappointed in me, I think, but I did like her. Um, I would say though, out of everything that I've done that people consider a little bit offbeat, it's goldsmithing uh, that I really enjoy the most. I find it extremely challenging. Um, I've also accumulated quite a lot of injuries in the process. And it's quite funny when people look at my scars and they're like, you know, what exactly do you do? The difference between those things that I've done um, and writing is that writing is something that I've actually actively pursued. All of my other gigs or, or, or jobs or things that I've done, these were things that I sometimes literally stumbled into, like I would fall and get into a situation or things that just happened to be there. And my attitude tends to be, well, you know, it can't hurt to try. And can't hurt to try has led me to a lot of questionable situations. Um, for example, I used to smuggle dairy from Europe to, sorry, from UK to Italy. 
and not realizing that the, there was a mad cow disease thing going on at the time. And people would pay me to buy certain dairy products for them when I was a goldsmith. So these, these were things that I just ended up doing without choosing really. And, but with writing, I started writing at a very early age. I used to write Transformers fan fiction and then uh, just, it sort of grew from there. My parents uh, encouraged me a lot. I, I was a very loved and spoiled child and my parents thought I was a genius. I think my dad probably still has that notebook full of Transformers fan fiction stories. But yes, that's the only thing that I've ever actually pursued. You say that you thought what harm could come from leaping into these opportunities, although it sounds like the goldsmithing came with a lot of harm, in fact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, um, I hate to, to emphasize or exaggerate how much pain is involved in goldsmithing, but it's actually very, you know, physically, it's, it takes a lot out of you. Your back hurts. Uh, I, also, I also apprentice in engraving, and you always end up poking your finger or your hand or your wrist with your graver, which is extremely sharp, and you always lose a lot of blood. Um, I remember one time I, uh, I burned my hand. Not real, so I didn't realize that a Bunsen burner was, was, was on because the sunlight was so bright and the flame is blue, right? So I actually put my hand over the flame to grab the burner. So I didn't want to make a, a big scene because as one of the youngest people there, I didn't want to act like, you know, I'd done something stupid, which I had. So, you know, I just very coolly showed my hand to one of the older masters who had, you know, at, the, at, at that time probably was in his 70s. And he looked at my hand, didn't say a word, went to the cupboard, took out uh, a giant bottle of grappa and poured me a shot. And that was it. You know, so, I mean, the sort of thing is that I just endure pain. I guess what all these jobs gave you, though, are, are lots of great stories that you can write about, too. Yeah, I mean, there, one of the things that when I was, uh, so I did, I did some creative writing courses in university, and my professor did tell me that you have to grab hold of life before you can have something to write. And I've always, I've always listened to that advice. Now, Doretta, you used to report on music, and I'm, I read your reviews in, in the Georgia Strait of some shows. I'm wondering, how has music informed your writing? And you want to talk a bit about how music is informing your writing currently, too. So I essentially launched into having a career as a journalist because of music. It was completely accidental. Um, I was going to school in England for a year. And one day I was supposed to be staying in London and then that fell through. So I had to take the train to Lancaster from London. And I bought a magazine called Dazed and Confused because uh, the band Pavement was on the cover. And so I was reading it and um, one of my friends at the time was talking about doing internships and I never heard of an internship before. And I thought, well, what if I write a letter to Dazed and Confused and see if I can intern with them? And so they said yes and I went and the very first thing they let me do uh, after I did all of the grunt work as an intern, I mean, I did things like take things to the dry cleaners and just like roll glue off magazines to make them look more presentable. Um, after I did all of that dues paying, they let me interview a band called Mellow, um, this French band. And from there, I thought, this is actually really fun. You get to go talk to someone about the work they do. 
And so I kind of fell into being a journalist through music and a love of music. And um, really just like when I was working on my short story collection, sat down, thought about the kinds of songs that the characters were listening to. Um, and I would play that music while I was writing. Um, and right now, some of the stuff that I'm pretty into, um, well, I'm really into that uh, Little Nas X song, Old Town Road. Uh, it's a hit with all the little kids. And um, there's a band in the movie Always Be My Maybe called Hello Peril, a play on um, the Yellow Peril. And they have a really fun song called I Punch Keanu Reeves. So I've been listening to that. That's great. I'm going to check that out. So you post a lot about branding on the unpublishables, Malloy. And, and Doretta, you once told me a story and talking before we started recording this, you told me it was actually Malloy who had told you from her marketing background to make every opportunity into a story and something that you used well when your short story was tweeted about by a famous comedian. You can tell us a bit about that. But I'm wondering how important overall do you think branding is to writers and what are things that we can be doing better to brand ourselves as writers? So Rachel, the story that you're talking about has to do with the story that I wrote called Every One of My Answers Was a Disappointment, which was published in the short story Advent Calendar. Um, and so Patton Oswalt, uh, the comedian, usually tweets about the stories. And when he got to mine, he wrote that it was one of his favorite stories of the year. And so I was really excited. And I ended up retweeting that. And then Malloy told me, you really should sit down and write a blog post about how the story came to be and link it to all of this because it's an opportunity to kind of tell more about the story and also to encourage other people who are writing that sometimes you get rejections, but the story will land somewhere and people who you don't expect will read it and love it um, and bring more attention to it. So it's really important not to think that a story because it's been rejected is not good enough, but really just like trying to find a place to place it, to find the editor that's going to love that work and to trust that the work is valuable and worthy and to continue to talk about it once it's out there in the world. In conjunction to that, I think Doretta did a really great job. Uh, the story had, you know, long legs. It could have had a life of just one week, but instead it expanded all the way to, I think one month, was it Doretta? Something like that. I mean, I, I still have moments where people find that story and, and, and talk about it. So it, it's kind of been this lasting moment. Yeah. And I think in support of that as well, Doretta has already done a lot of work on her own personal branding, uh, which she started on when her first book was published. And maybe she should talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean... When it came to branding and marketing, when the first book was coming out, I really didn't know anything about it at all. And like a lot of writers, it's just like you spend so much time working on the craft and you don't really think about the fact that the book has to sell or that you have to be a part of that process of selling. It feels really strange. But Malloy sat me down and explained to me that marketing is really just about telling a story. And it's about this opportunity to control your own narrative and put out the message that you want to put out and to connect with audiences and to build a fan base. And when she put it that way, it didn't feel kind of like a weird kind of selling out idea, but it was really about making those connections and really reaching out and really respecting 
the readers, um, giving them that extra content that they would want if they do love the work. And so she sat me down and just point by point explained, you know, when you have an event, you're supposed to create a feeling and you want people to want to take that feeling home with them. And when they have that feeling, they will buy your book. And I had never thought about a reading that way. I had really only thought about, oh, well, I go and I read my work and I try to sound enthusiastic about it. But I never thought, you know, how should I create a feeling? How do I create that connection with audience? And so from there, she just really got me to think about, you know, my personal brand, the things I wanted to, to say, and to really just focus kind of publishing activities around that in support of the book. Um, and so we looked at my social media. Um, at the time, I didn't even have a smartphone, so I bought one so I could do Instagram. And it was really creating this idea of, you know, the things in the book that are interesting. So just like, again, going back to music, looking at music, looking at um, characters in pop culture who are Asian, and just kind of like crafting connections between my book and, and those things. And just always thinking about what the next project is going to be, and then really just like planting seeds of that next project. I would have to say that Doretta really opened my eyes to the uh, problem of the lack of branding that writers have, because uh, my my experience with branding is from the music industry, and so I was with one of the big the big five back when there were five big record labels. And you go in and there's expectations that musicians will put in the work to brand, to market, to, to, to promote their albums. So it was a big shock to me, I think, when Doretta told me that writers who I see in terms of, um, in terms of their, the need for promotion on the same level as musicians and perhaps even more necessary for writers to do it because there isn't an entire system ecosystem built to promote uh, books the way there are for for music. Um, I was very shocked that writers didn't know about branding, that they didn't get the support that musicians would from a big label. And I think writers tend to have the wrong perception of branding as something that is fake or uh, one of the things I always see is when writers have a book come out, they suddenly begin tweeting please buy my book, my book is coming out, and so and so. That's not, that's not promotion, that's not marketing, that's begging. Branding is all about showing people what they can expect from you. It's a narrative, as Doretta pointed out. It's not last minute sheepish asking people to please pre-order your book or review it on Amazon. I find that whenever I see that, I just really cringe. I just can't, I think if I had ever done that back when I was working in the music industry, I would have been fired and not just fired, but probably, you know, yelled at for at least half an afternoon. But um, it's just really important for writers to understand that branding doesn't mean that you have to put yourself out there, that, you know, you have to, you know, be an extrovert or anything like that. A lot of writers, who were introverts were amazing at branding, whether deliberately or just sort of intuitively. Uh, J.D. Salinger, fantastic brand. All I have to do is say his name and people suddenly, you know, think about, you know, his, his very sensitive, uh, reclusive, you know, uh, sort of uh, New Yorker, uh, you know, very educated and artistic 
kind of a, a writer, you know, Hemingway, you know, very masculine and sort of this terse kind of a writer, you know, Virginia Woolf, again, all of these great writers had their own brand. And, you know, it, it's really strange for me to see modern writers or contemporary contemporary writers who shy away from a brand because, I mean, it's not locking yourself into a specific space or saying that, you know, but a brand is a story that grows with you. It's a narrative that encompasses a part of you that you want to share. So you always have control over it. Um, I don't know if Doretta wants to talk about her own experience with other writers and their struggles with branding? Well, I guess the first thing is that, Malloy, one of the most important things that you taught me about branding is you're thinking about the value that you're bringing to the reader and you're not thinking about yourself. And I think that's one of the key things that a lot of people forget when it comes to branding. Um, I've been finding that one of the struggles that I've been having when I speak with some writers is they think that they're press or their publisher is going to do all of this marketing work. And I can assure you from the perspective of someone who has worked at a publishing house, I worked at Scholastic, um, and as a person who's worked as a journalist and as a writer myself, um, I have seen that it is not possible for the one marketing person who might have 10 titles in one season to do that full service work that, you know, a writer expects for their book. And it's not a knock on the the person whose job it is um, to do some of the marketing work because they're one person and it's unfair for a writer to expect to pass on this work to this one person. Um, so my struggle's really been trying to get other writers to understand that we need to be a part of this process, that um, we need to respect the time of the marketing people that we're working with and to bring our best ideas and our kind of best selves to the full process of going into a, a season for a book. And I mean, from what I understand from you, Malloy, that this work really begins from the moment that you sign your book deal, which is two years out for the most part for the kind of life of a book from the, the point that it sells to the point that it actually is published. So I think the thing is people need to understand that in order for a book to get attention. I mean, there are some people who are really lucky who seem to participate in next to no uh, promotional kinds of things, um, but it's very rare for a writer to win a whole bunch of awards and not do any sort of marketing work. And I think as well, um, in terms of what, what, what can writers do to start with in terms of branding? And a lot of writers, uh, from what I can see, feel very uncomfortable with social media. They don't like to tweet. They don't like to be on Facebook. And that's fine. I don't, I don't really use Twitter or Facebook that much either. But what you need to do is to get yourself, your, your content out there. Uh, one of the things that um, I Dred and I have been really admiring Ali Wong's work recently. So just sort of her marketing strategy has been fantastic. And Ali is a really good example of how you start with a grassroots foundation. So we're both very big believers in the idea of 1,000 true fans and that all you need to start to support your career is 1,000 fans who will be with you come hell or high water no matter what you do they will they will they will they will take your content they will 
buy whatever you put out. And everybody else is sort of a, a bonus. So uh, somebody like Ali Wong, who started off in stand-up, uh, do, doing clubs, and you don't make money doing that, you know, and, um, and then writing for uh, Fresh Off the Boat. These are things that build a foundation. Number one, you don't just get to build your fan base, but you also get to meet people within your community. So Ali met other comedians, other writers, people who, you know, and we're not saying that, you know, you meet people with the express purpose of using them, but you will find your level, if that's an appropriate term, but you will find the people who who will support you and who you can support as well. And it's, it's a matter of forming a community and you don't need social media. Social media is just to make this community easier to manage, but you don't need it necessarily. You know, um, one of the one of the other things that Ali did is that once she got to the level where she was able to film her her show for Netflix, uh, Baby Cobra, you know, she was able to parlay a brand that was so obvious. When you think Ali, you think her glasses, you know, that sort of, um, I, I always call Ali's brand as, you know, your favorite cousin or your favorite sister, because she is that, you know, I think most people do have that friend who, who's, who's like Ali, you know, she brings up stuff that most, that some people would be too repressed or, you know, modest or, you know, afraid to speak about. And she just sort of brings it out in a very factual way. She's, she's like, you know, your, 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 yeah, your favorite cousin or your favorite sister. And that's such a strong brand. I, I love what you say about how, I mean, because I think it's true that a lot of writers are introverts and PR seems kind of like a, a dirty word to them and thinking about how to how to build an audience. All of a sudden, you know, they get a book deal and it's like, oh, yeah, you're thrown to the wolves. You have to market your own book. Like there's just isn't aren't the resources like Doretta is saying. And one of the things like when I work with students, so I, I work a lot on the business side of writing, too. It's like even before you finish the book, start thinking about how to just join a conversation about the topics in your book and not I think pro probably most important what you're saying is like not making it about yourself like it can really be about the people that are interested in the subject that you're writing about I think that's really yeah helpful. absolutely I think community is really important I can't imagine how people can do things without a community I mean again coming in from music uh, before we launched an album, we would already seed the ground by having, you know, a lot of these stars that people see now, they don't see that there were at least three years, three, four, five years of really difficult grunt work. We would put bands, you know, to, to sing, to perform in shopping malls, in groceries, in parks, you know, in schools, anybody who would have them, they would go. And they would they would learn because they would often perform. They were nobodies and they would often perform for people who did not want them there. We, uh, we had a boy band who had uh, bottles thrown at them, you know, because we, for some reason, the only booking they could get was at a metal concert. So they opened for a metal act. They were this really cute <laughs> little boy band, you know, and people were just, what? the hell and they were throwing you know these guys were crying when they were performing but they finished they finished their set you know and um i'm not gonna name names but one of them is really famous now it's, it's things like that that people don't see but you know i don't know how many people from that crowd of i think there were about six thousand people in the crowd but i'm sure at least 10 must have gone and bought their album just from the sheer fact that they finished a set while having bottles and garbage thrown at them 
What would be the equivalent for writers to kind of throw themselves in that arena? What are what are some of the things? I want to ask you this because I feel like we're you dropped us into like a master class on marketing here. So <laughs> what are what are some of the things that writers could do? What's their um, concert with bottles being thrown at them to kind of put themselves out there? Teach a class. Teach a writing class to kids. I think a lot of writers if if they're introverted, which I totally understand because I, I I may be an introvert, I'm not really sure. But teaching kids to write um, especially if, or, or, you know, seniors, anybody, you know, once you're giving to the community, it's very frightening because, you know, again, it's going into a space where you're not comfortable and where you may not necessarily be welcome. I've, I've told the story as well before where I used to teach. And um, so I taught for a nonprofit. And uh, so they sent, they sent us to different schools and they would ha- we would have this little sort of a program that we would have to complete at the school. And I got sent to one of the worst schools in Hong Kong. Uh, the school was so was in a really bad neighborhood, uh, so bad that there was no 7-Eleven. And in Hong Kong, there's no 7-Eleven there. It's a really bad sign. And when I when I walked when I walked into school, the principal told me, "You have to be out of here by five o'clock. You have to take that bus because after five o'clock, I can't guarantee what's going to happen to you." So I was like, "Okay." And um, so that school was already so it was an all boys school known for uh, gang activity. And the school had somehow thought it was a good idea to gather the worst truants, the worst delinquents, put them together in a room and make them learn and perform a Christmas carol for Christmas. And not just that, but make them force them to come in during Christmas break. And uh, so (laughs) when I walked in the door, I was like, okay, guys, we're going to we're going to do Christmas Carol. And and one of the students threw a chair. Oh, sorry. I threw a table at me and he walked out and I was like, okay. (laughs) This is not, you know, but there were 20 kids, I think, in that class. And I think maybe I reached one kid, but, you know, that's one kid. And he has friends, he has family, you know, and I think writers, you don't have to go to the worst school in your district. But, you know, I think reaching out to teach a class to to get kids to learn to write and appreciate, you don't have to teach them to write. You can teach them, um, you know, even a book club or something, but anything that has to do with something that you're interested in. And some writers, I think, have really interesting hobbies. I think some, um, there's a writer who is a bird watcher. I can't remember what the actual term is, sorry. But I mean, that would be great if, if they could lead a group, you know, and then it's, it's really just getting yourself out there in a way that is comfortable for you you don't really have to you know you, you don't you don't have a uh, a predatory record label behind you you know whipping you to a metal concert you know um it's just a matter of build that community it doesn't have to be one community you know we all have diverse interests explore them and find people there i guess i mean to kind of bring it back around full circle too. That's a big part of what publishing in Lit Mags is too, is finding your community, finding people who are going to read you in, in those different places and then having them follow you to your book publication. I, I want to also circle back to um, the actual story, like the, the tweet from Patton Oswalt about Doretta's brilliant story. Every one of my answers was a disappointment. And then how Doretta, you turn that into a story because he was talking about the brilliant ending of the piece. And I think you mentioned that that ending was what a lot of publishers had critiqued before and had asked, you know, suggested that you change and you stuck to your guns, kept sending the work out. Can you talk a bit about um, the lesson and the encouragement maybe writers can take from that story? Yeah, I mean, I just was, I had written it. I sent the story off to my agent. My agent 
loved the story, said it was the best unpublished piece of fiction she had read in a long time. We got really excited. She sent it to the New Yorker, Paris Review, um, Tin House, and yeah, all the comments came back with, the story's great. And then that last section does not work. And um, I was really lucky. Michael Hingston from Short Story Advent Calendar, Hingston and Olson, reached out and said, you know, do you have a story? Um, I'm working on the calendar this year. And so I, I sent it to him. And he just was like, okay, we're, we're going with this. And uh, when it was published, I had so many people write to me and just say, wow, that ending, it, it's, it's incredible. And so it's really different readers are going to have a different response to your work and it doesn't mean the work is bad. And so for any writer who's thinking, you know, when they're piling up the rejections, if you sit down and really think, did I do the hard work on this story? Did I take this to the farthest point of where I can go to make it emotionally satisfying, to really look deep into it and say, did I do that craft work? And if the answer is yes, I've done all the work, it's really about not giving up. It's really about kind of thinking about, you know, which magazine might be into it, to kind of reach out to editors that you may have developed relationships with over time to say, um, would you be interested in reading this? Is this something that you think that you can publish? Um, and to just not give up, really. I mean, the story of not giving up really just like goes back to my short story collection. It took 10 years to write, and a lot of the stories were rejected. And the title story of my collection was rejected maybe, I think, five times um, before it got accepted at event. And from there, it was Silas White at Nightwood Editions saw it, and he asked me if I was working on a book. And it also was um, shortlisted for the Journey Prize. So that was a story that five editors did not like, and I never changed a single word. I just thought, well, it's time to send it to the next place. It's time to reach out to the next person. So it's really about just after all the time you've put into being a writer and to being part of a community, the community is there for you. And it's really about just doing the work and then reaching out and trying to find the right audience for the work. Nice. Can you tell us a bit about the kind of writing that you love to publish with the unpublishables and about the, I guess, the voice and also the various genres that you're publishing? Well, we really just want people to write the thing that they love to write or make the art that they love to make without this idea that they're serving a gatekeeper type of audience. So it's the work that they're making if they're kind of reflecting their very true selves. Um, it's kind of like the difference between the personality Drake brings to his hip hop life and the personality that Drake brings to courtside for a basketball game. We're looking for courtside Drake. We're looking for things that are full of passion, that might be a little bit messy, um, that the person is really showing whatever truth of art that they're kind of seeking to make. And so we do fiction, we do interviews, um, we publish art. Um, we're really just trying to do kind of anything that can fit into kind of that web space. So we do a lot of photography as well. And it's really an opportunity for people to build an audience for whatever project that they're kind of 
wanting to to put out into the world next. So it's kind of small steps to create uh, attention for a bigger project. Uh, just to add on to that, I uh, as Zoretta said, we're really interested in people who are looking to build a platform. So people who are interested in producing content that will eventually, that may not, that may, you know, may be free right, right now or building their sort of brand as a writer, but with a greater purpose. We do like the messy writers, but we also really hope to get more of the writers who are very ambitious, uh, writers who have, you know, this book or uh, maybe a, a, a TV deal or uh, a, a film that they have in the way future, but they, they're really ready to build towards that. And any before I let you go, and thank you so much for your generosity today and, and the lesson in, in marketing and branding is, is, <laughs> out, is, is great and so helpful. But I'm wondering, do you have any advice that you give writers who submit and don't make it into the unpublishables? And maybe you can talk a bit about some of the common mistakes or problems you see with submissions. Um, for me, we I tend to seek people out. Uh, so this I don't really look at all the submissions. I don't know about Doretta. Uh, however, uh, in terms of the few that I have rejected, because I kind of, you know, I'd rather work with someone rather than outright reject them. Um, the few that I have rejected, I think, goes back to the whole idea of authenticity. And I felt like these people were trying to write to impress. And so they were writing things that they may not have known much about, but they wanted to sort of, because it was a trendy topic at the time, or it was something that they admired perhaps in another writer that they wanted to do themselves. And I think that's a really good thing. I think everybody starts that way. But that's not really what we're about. We're really looking for authenticity of voice and experience. I would rather somebody wrote about, you know, their experience with one of the, the strange, um, unique lifestyles that you can see in Asia. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, people doing strange things, but people doing mundane things that people don't really realize. Like uh, one of the things that Dred and I often laugh about is how many people I know who own golf courses and they use it to drive around their houses. You know, and I mean, that's a story there, but you get people like that who would rather not talk about because they they don't think it's a, it's a, it's an experience worth talking about. And they rather golf carts. I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, you know, you know, so many people who own golf courses. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, they just own golf carts. That's, that's, okay, that's gotcha. really funny. I wish people would write about things, these things rather than write about this thing that they think is more literary or deserves to be written about. Yeah, it really comes down to people kind of going to their lives and their kind of emotional truths. I think if people stick to that, um, that's we're really interested in that work. And, and I'm not talking about memoir. I'm talking about the things that you can see in everyday life that you know to be true. Putting it on that page, it's like that. That for me is really interesting. Um, and a lot of the times it's just like if something doesn't fit for the unpublishables, it doesn't mean that it's not publishable elsewhere. It's just that we have a very specific idea of what we think works for our readers and for the things that uh, we think that 
the audience that we've been developing over the past few years are kind of interested in looking at. And so it's really about just like sitting back and thinking, does this work really speak to kind of the humanity of kind of the Asian experience and to really just think about how those small things in everyday life that we're talking about, just like the way, you know, the street smells, the way um, people might do just like those kind of things at like the grocery store. There's just like little small things that kind of accumulate that tell you about a culture. And we're kind of interested in work that does that. It doesn't have to be flashy. It's really about getting to the core of what kind of drives the communities around us. So um, really it's just like, if there's a rejection, it's not about the work. It's really about like, does it fit with the vision that we have for uh, a space to feature work? I do have one piece of advice for writers in general, I think, that doesn't have anything to do with our site, but I think uh, is a very important force that we, we believe in uh, personally and on the site as well. And that is to show gratitude. Uh, I think a lot of writers may be too scared or intimidated to just write thank you, or maybe they just forget. But one of the things that I do encourage is that people have a regularly updated list of people that they should thank. And I will leave, I will end this with an, another music industry anecdote, but there's a musician, uh, I, I'll just to give a quick clue, Canadian, who out of all the years that me and my boss ever worked in the music industry is one of five people who have ever thanked us after a tour and after working on their album. And he is also the only one who ever regularly sent us Christmas cards. And you can bet that we worked our asses off for him. If he needed something, everybody jumped. You know, we, we love this guy. We, we, we would, if, if, his, if there was anything for him, we would make it a priority. Even if he wasn't supposed to be a priority, everything we could do for him to sell his album. It was like our own personal project. Whereas, you know, we had other artists who were bigger, who were perhaps more prioritized, but because they never said thank you or they never showed any appreciation for the work that we did, we kind of, we did, we did what we had to do, but, you know, for this guy, you know, and to this day, we, we all talk about him. You know, all of us have left the industry more or less because it's collapsed, but we still love this guy. And yeah, I think writers should remember showing gratitude and saying thank you to people goes a long way. Yeah, so much. <laughs> this podcast comes out of a course that I teach called Lit Mag Love, and I have a whole lesson on gratitude because I really believe yeah. in that. Too. I think yeah, it's so totally. Yeah, I think people can guess who this guy is. But I'm not going to say anything. A very grateful, kind Canadian. And yes. gratitude's so good for you, too, like just to sort of it see is. how things are going well and not focus on things that are going poorly. Yes, exactly. As, as we know in writing, there's a lot of rejection. We're talking about that here, too. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for your time and thank you for so much sharing so much wisdom about the, the marketing side of, of writing, which is <laughs> something that we don't get to delve into a lot here. So I think that's really helpful. And also just like your passion and energy and wonderful stuff that you bring to the unpublishables. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. Now, there's so much good stuff to glean from this conversation with Empire Mita Lin and Doretta Lau. And 
The first is, and, and really one of the big reasons that I invited Doretta to the podcast is she's so encouraging for writers and she loves sharing the message of don't give up to writers of how how much time it really takes to develop your writing and to see the response that you want and build the community and audience that you want for your writing. And she mentioned that she had a piece that had the same feedback from really major publications. They asked her to change the ending several times, but in fact, when it eventually found its home, that very piece was celebrated for this ending. So don't give up is the message to pick there. And when it comes to the kind of writing they're looking for in the unpublishables, I love how Doretta says, we're looking for courtside Drake. So reflect your passion and your enthusiasm for things. And uh, Malloy and Parmita Lynn says they're looking for very ambitious writers. So consider publishing with the Unpublishables a small step to create attention for a bigger project. Also on the Unpublishables website, they say sometimes we might be crazy. Sometimes we might be annoying. Sometimes we might be hypocritical. But one thing that we will always be is honest. And that message came through so often in this conversation. And in fact, the title of this episode, Reflect Your True Self. They were talking a lot about authenticity. And then they also talked about um, building an audience for your writing. And Malloy and Parmita Lynn gave us a really great, I think, mini masterclass in marketing for writers, that marketing is just telling stories. And talked about the maxim of finding a hundred or sorry, a thousand true fans and some really specific ways to kind of build up that audience. And in fact, I'm linking in the show notes to a piece that Doretta Lau wrote in response to that big tweet from Patton Oswald, who tweets about the um, short story advent calendar every year and, and really enjoyed her piece and sing- singled that out for praise. And then the response that she created based on that to kind of build a bigger story about about her writing and tell that story, in fact, about how the ending hadn't been celebrated by all the publications she'd sent it to, but in fact is the thing that people were talking about that was the most exciting part about it. You can follow The Unpublishables on Twitter at Unite the Rice. Again, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975, and the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for the episode is done by Micah Lemiski, and I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review wherever you get your podcast, we would love that, and it really helps other writers discover the podcast. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at litmaglove. Thanks for writing and reading literature, and thanks for listening to litmaglove. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.